For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. When we first started thinking about the guests I'd have on my new show, I knew we wanted to feature women leaders who are at the top of their field and who are consistently breaking new ground in their industries. One of the women was none other than my sister, Wendy Feinerman. For starters, I knew she would at least be one guest I could get. So in that regard, she was kind of a sure thing. But most importantly, I am truly in awe of the career that she's built for herself as a producer and the impact that she's made on the film industry as a whole. She has created some of the most loved and iconic movies of our era or any era. My sister, Wendy Feinerman, is an American film producer of nearly a dozen feature films. She was one of three producers who won the Academy Award for Best Picture for Forrest Gump in 1994, which also won a Golden Globe for Best Picture. And in 1998, she won a BAFTA, the British equivalent of an Oscar, for her work on the movie Fairy Tale. She's produced some of the world's favorite movies, including The Devil Wears Prada, Stepmom, and Drumline, to name a few. She's also a mother to four incredible children and the founder and CEO of her own production company, Wendy Feinerman Productions. Wendy, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this with me, although you really didn't have a choice, did you? No, but it'll cost you since this is about finance. <laughs> you can't say that to many people, but you could say it to your sister. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So we're going to get to your extraordinary career, but I wanted to start at the beginning. So for the Feinerman girls, and there are four of us, all things began with our mother, Jane. And I know that the message I received was, you must be financially independent, and also money does buy happiness. And of course, <laughs> Jane's, I mean, true, right? And Jane's Calvinist philosophy, which is not what you may think Calvinism is, hers is, I buy my girls Calvin Klein clothes, so that's all they know. Then when they graduate college, they have to figure out how to pay for them themselves. That's it. That's the Calvinist philosophy. And I can't tell you how many people think Calvinism is something else entirely different. But every woman that I've interviewed has some sort of formative experience that shapes them. And I know one of yours because I lived it with you, because it's the kind of story that we don't often have a chance to explore. And when we were young, our younger brother died in an accident. And it is a tragedy that we live with every day. But for you, the oldest child and the one who really was asked to step in and be an adult when our parents weren't really able, you were forced to be a grown-up right away. So that's my perception of it. 
how do you think about that and its impact on you and your journey? I think that what happened to our family changes all children and all members of the immediate family. I think for myself in particular, our brother died in a pool accident and I was the one who got him out and then had to call the people and tell my father. And basically it was different then, you know, children's emotional well-being was not as important in recognizing what their pain could be as we would behave today. I mean, nobody would say to a young child who just lost their youngest sibling in a horrific, tragic accident, well, you need to take care of your family right now. You're 12 years old and you need to be in charge of everyone. And this is your responsibility because your parents will be in no shape to handle it. That was the end of my childhood. I was 12. My childhood was over. I couldn't really have carefree fun the way that most soon-to-be teenagers could. And I had to really take care of my family. Luckily, we were very comfortable financially, not excessively, but we were comfortable. But the emotional aspects were really scarring, but kind of say you have to find the good in all bad. I can take care of anything and I can do anything. I am really very strong and very willful and at times, to be honest, very numb if I need to be. I can put everything aside and I can be very goal-driven. I can sometimes not have as much fun. I do feel that the challenges that I were given so young had many positive aspects to my work life and probably negative aspects to my personal life because I kind of was like, no matter what you throw me, I can handle something. I've handled something way worse than most situations anybody will ever have in their life. And that is what I look that I gained from it. And I certainly would have not become the person I am today or the accomplishments I had if I hadn't had those challenges when I was younger. Yeah, for you, it makes that ability to compartmentalize, that ability to just say, this is the goal, and I am just going to find a way to get there and make that happen. And I also can say in any situation, it's like, you have no idea what I've been through in my life. People think that we are a privileged, Ivy League-educated family on many generations who grew up in Beverly Hills, California, and we had tennis lessons and cars and nice things and the family house that everybody was at. People often don't know what's behind that, which is a lot of challenges and a lot of sorrow. And a lot of therapy. Let's talk about your career. And one of the things that I've found often with so many successful women is it didn't start at the place where it ended up. So tell us your story. How did you get started? What was your path to get there? Our mother was a force of nature, and our father was a brilliant, still is a brilliant, academic, teaching, physician, Johns Hopkins scholar, and he was very scientific in the scientific mind and mathematics and things like that. And I think, for me, I was very, very, very good with numbers, and I was totally illiterate when it came 
<laughs> reading and writing. I, I think I had the highest discrepancy score ever on the SATs. I got like one wrong. Of course, Karen probably got none wrong on the math. And I think I got one point higher than signing your name on the English. And I took that and figured out how to study. I did Dostoevsky because you could kind of figure it out, Dostoevsky versus Hemingway. You know, it's like you can make up your interpretation and get creative with what you do. And then with college, I went to Wharton, as did Karen and my other sister, Stacy. And I thrived in business. I love the idea of creating things. But one thing I didn't know is going to the best undergraduate business school in the country, you were very groomed to going into corporate Wall Street. And I looked at that and I'm going, this does not fit me. I really realized that the corporate trajectory of me in an investment banking world was not, first of all, I couldn't even dress that way. It was the time of the Peter Pan collars and I couldn't do it. And I had a number of internships both while I was in school and during the summers when I was at school. And one of them that I felt was really interesting was I had been a media planner at Dancer Fitzgerald and Sample, which was one of the biggest advertising agencies then. And I had been given the Toyota media plan to work on for the summer. And it was really interesting. And still to this day, I find it very effective that I can actually look at a media plan and find out where the most efficient and inefficient use of spending is for media. And from that, I realized that there was a creative avenue that possibly I could take my numeric strengths with. I got offers at a number of corporate advertising agencies and other more creative things in the financial world, but I still realized I had to wear that outfit that I just didn't want to wear. And along came this job at the Movie Channel, which was part of MTV, Movie Channel, MTV, and Nickelodeon, all in its first year it was the coolest place to work in New York City. It was the coolest. It also gave you like $10,000 a year. And my parents were just horrified that I turned down all these other jobs to take this job. And it was really one of the best experiences of my life in college. I really had not been drawn to the arts. I enjoyed my art history classes and my art classes and my photography classes, but I was not a student of cinema by any means. And luckily, I had seen enough key movies during all of those classes that when somebody said to me, what can you think of the most iconic thing in cinema? I said, Rosebud from Citizen Kane. And that happened to be that person's favorite movie. And sure enough, I got a job. And at that point, I was anointed the chief financial analyst for the movie channel, which was basically the movie channel, MTV and Nickelodeon. And I figured out all of their strategic financial plans, which was absolutely absurd since I had only graduated from college four days beforehand and did take my finance and accounting textbooks into my office with me. I actually was very nice to say that I had my own office, 21. <laughs> and nobody else did. And I was off to the races. And it was grand all time to be in New York in, in the 80s and have MTV and Warner be your home was really pretty cool. Well, then you ended up obviously in LA for a long time. So the industry, though, that you chose, it's incredibly competitive. And many people view it as, frankly, impossible to break into. And so how did you manage to do that to leverage your movie channel 
into making the leap to L.A. and then into the movie business? I feel we were very lucky. We grew up in a very smart family, but we were raised to be low-key, to be humble. But we had a lot of access to a lot of really wonderful things from our parents, but even more so from our grandparents. I mean, my grandparents were really so instrumental in my life. They were really true patrons of the arts. They lived a beautiful lifestyle without ever being ostentatious. And they were really right out of the Philadelphia story in terms of the movie as a class act. And one of the things that I think helped differentiate me along the way in Los Angeles was I was this young girl who was very well educated, and I used that to stand out. I wrote impeccable thank you notes, handwritten. They're not legible, neither are my sisters, but I wrote them. We would have very informal get-togethers at all times with kids and family and famous people and not famous people. And it wasn't done lavishly. It's not like there was champagne and caviar, but it was just done so beautifully. People didn't entertain that way. And I always dressed appropriately. There was something about me that I think that had a little bit of East Coast stature. And I used that not to be noticed, but it certainly made me very different than everyone else. And that's not to say I didn't run around the beach in ripped up shorts and t-shirts, but I could do all that on the turn of a dime. You'd come back and there would be the most beautiful, welcoming environment. I used my feminine skills in a world that was often all filled with men. So I could add as quickly as they could. I can't read as quickly as most people can, but I certainly can hone in and find out what I felt would be commercial and that what one could sell or not. But you could be that, but you couldn't be that and be a beautiful host. And I was young. I was very young for who I was. I was very young. I was very confident. And probably I was a lot of those things based on what I had from being with my losses at a very young age. It's interesting. You never know what's going to affect you down the line. So I have to get to the thing for which you are, are most famous, which is Forrest Gump, which was an epic multi-year, not the movie I'm talking about, to get the movie to be made is what I'm talking about. And so you are often considered to be the driving force to have gotten that movie done. I know there were other producers with you, but it, it wouldn't have gotten done without you. And in the entertainment industry, you have to be a diplomat, you have to be aggressive, you have to worry about the talent, and you have to make compromises. And so how did you do that? What are your sort of best tricks for persuading people to get on board with you? I'm a very quick study of people. I'm a very quick study of people. And that is, does not mean that I studied them before I meet them. I've been known to do that as well. But I also present to people, I think, a very warmth and a friendship, if I can. It's interesting. I just, a couple of weeks ago, spent the day with Bob Zemeckis, who was the director of Forrest Gump. And when I look back on it, a lot of people in his shoes, being one of the top directors in the world, especially at that time, and he still is, 
would have really kind of gotten upset by all the attention that I garnered. It really was the most attention a producer ever had gotten or probably still has ever gotten for being the champion of a movie. And with the creative talent I deal with, I always let them know I am working for them, whether that be the case or not. You make it seem that you are out to give them all that they need. And I am out to give them all that they need until there comes a decision or a choice where either one, I am not able to, that may be fiscally, or two, creatively, I may think that it's not appropriate. And I have been in those situations many times, but if you let people know you're trying to work with them and support them, they'll listen when you have to challenge them. It's not so bad. So, you know, only saying no, I have a t-shirt that I wear with my kids, which is what part of no don't you understand? And I've never had a situation where I have had to challenge creative talent and they have been upset with me because they know that I'm always really looking out what's best for them. And even though they may not share the vision that I see, I'm looking out for what's best for everyone. And that vision is success. So what you do is you make everyone feel that they matter. And they do matter. And they're going to be motivated. They're with you. They're with you. And I've always thought that is part of your secret to success. It is. I mean, we were raised that way. I treat everybody the same way I'd like to be treated or even better. I do. I say good morning to everybody. I offer everybody everything. And, and normally in my job, it's everyone's job to bring me everything. I care and let everyone know how much I care about them. First of all, it's just more fun. It's a nicer environment when everybody knows that you're thinking of one another. But the other thing is you get more out of them. If people see that you care and you're polite and you really have warmth and you are willing to pull the extra cable, Tony Scott, who was one of the hardest working, God bless him, his soul, he's not here with us any longer. He used to pull the cable. And what that means is when you're turning around and setting up a shot, all the cables that give the electricity for either the cameras or the lights, meaning you pull the cable around because you're changing the shot. He would pull the cable himself. He would, we move our chairs ourselves. I will share a car, even though contractually I'm entitled to my own car and driver. I'll share it with anybody. I make them my family, the crew. What you want people to say is, I love working with her. And when people love working with you, you get more out of them and often just a better environment for everybody. And one of the other things I pride myself on, and I think it is a Feinerman tradition, is I get along with every single person for the most part, I really can't think of who I don't, who I've worked with in the past. And I had the experience once without sounding boastful of bumping into a director who I had made a film with. And I happened to be attending a screening for work with the director I was about to make a movie with. And the previous director turned to him and said, you're about to have the best experience of your life. There is not a better producer in the world than Wendy. And it's nice, but it all works for everybody. And at the end, it really works especially well for me. Right. It could be good for you and good for everyone else also at the same time. I also am lucky enough to be in a position where I'm not going to say I can choose what I'm going to make, but I won't make things I'm not proud of. And I just will not do a job just for hire. I need to really be committed to it, believe in it, 
And luckily, I've had the success that's allowed me to make those decisions of not just working for the paycheck, but I won't do anything unless I firmly believe in it. Part of it also happens to do with what one creates for themselves as their own brand. You know, part of my brand is you know that if you're going to work with us, then it is going to be a project we are committed to 100% for the long haul. And it won't be a flash in the pan and we will be there. So if there's a project that we choose that we want to develop and get involved with, you know we are really committed. And the other thing is, is that the way that the business has changed so that our track record is so great that having movies that just perform fine or okay really in some ways dilutes who we are. It's more about we really feel confident in what we do and we do it well. So we don't do it as often as most, and that is a choice. And now we're going to take a quick break. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Wendy Feinerman, Hollywood producer. So that sort of gets me to the question. You have had a tremendous success ratio and achieved the highest there is to achieve, but not every single project works out. So how do you deal with when a movie doesn't do as well as you hope that it would, or maybe something you never got made? How do you deal with the flip side of success, the other side, the things that aren't as successful as you hope? How do you deal with that and bounce back? How do you think about it? The intention's always there. 
it's very discouraging when I have a project I love, like the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane that has sold over 6 million books, and I'm still trying 16 years later to get it made, of which I will. I don't define what we do by success in terms of box office. I define what we do by success in terms of what the final output is. A little movie called Fairy Tale, for example, was a movie I believed in wholeheartedly. It had many different versions where we almost got it made, then we didn't get it made. And finally, we did get it made and we won the BAFTA. And not a lot of people know that. So it didn't necessarily give us the attention of success. But what it did do is personally, it provided confidence when you have a little teeny movie go win a BAFTA. You know, so I look for the jewels. I try not to look for the bad. I try not to let it get me down. I try to just kind of, you believed in what you did. You move ahead and don't look back. And the other thing I do agree with is that you always try to learn from whatever mistakes and failures you have. And there's a couple movies that I was put in an unfortunate position where I had to continue pursuing them. You were on the the sinking ship, but I wasn't going to bail. And in those situations, I had one where my lawyer said to me, it was with a very difficult company. And afterwards, my lawyer said to me, oh my God, you're the only person I know who still talks to me after you made a movie with them. And I just try to find something that you can learn from. Was it an enjoyable experience? No. Did I learn from them? Yes. What else can you do? Just take what you can learn and move forward. So let's get to women in Hollywood. You've been in Hollywood a long time in in junior roles and senior roles. Is it getting any better for women in Hollywood? Yes, it's getting better for women in Hollywood. However, that be said, it is getting better and there are more opportunities. I look back at two women who were the original real trailblazers, both Sherry Lansing and Dawn Steele, who were both true role models of mine, and each was very important in my career and supporting our company, and they were exceptional at nurturing other women. So I remember you telling me a story about, and this was after a tremendous success, Forrest Gump and Devil Wears Prada and Stepmom, in a meeting with some studio executives. They were male. One of them said, listen, let me tell you what women want. And I always find that story to just be so ridiculous and not shocking. Did that all happen a lot or was that just that one particular time? It did happen sometimes. I do remember being in a marketing meeting and it was for P.S. I Love You. And there was a man there who kind of looked at me and said, what do you know about marketing women's movies? Because I was challenging him on an image. Well, first of all, I'm a woman. Okay. So <laughs> right. There, there really, is that. That was just such yes. a stupid question. <laughs> and second of all, it was in a studio that was not known for their predominant work of for supporting female entertainment. They're more of a, a male action studio. I also was like, do you know, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking like, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> like, have you heard of Devil Wears Prada? Oh. I mean, this is a year after Devil Wears Prada, which was, you know, one of the other things that we've done is the movies that we make are made usually for a very responsible budget. And that has made our success even far 
more dramatic because they're profitable and most movies aren't. And so it wasn't worth my time. And the sad part is now I think about it, I don't even think most people in the room even understood how stupid it was. They just kind of went <laughs> along with it. We can't end without talking about Devil Wears Prada. There is not a woman I know, or actually not very many people I know, that have not seen that movie several times. It's so fantastic. And one of the things that's also so great about it, it's fresh. It is still evergreen. That movie ages very well. It's phenomenal. I, You know, it's my favorite of all of your work, which is tremendous, but... That's actually my favorite one. If I, it's on in a room, I have to stay there and watch the entire thing. I get a message. I got one yesterday, a text and one from somebody saying, just when I need it, it's on tonight. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at a really pretty little dress today and it was floral and this and the other. And I went, flowers for spring. It's a wonderful gift that keeps on giving. All right. Flowers for, for spring. That and Cerulean Blue. What a fantastic movie. And now we're going to take a quick break. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, every day of the week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes. Stories that will impact you, such as how a particular hurricane may affect your area, or will that impending snow event bring more than just a winter wonderland? Occasionally, there are weather-related stories from the lighter side, like how a recent storm trapped tourists inside Agatha Christie's house, a setup perfect for a plot of one of her novels. And if there's a spectacular meteor shower or eclipse coming your way, We'll let you know if the sky in your area will be clear to check out the celestial display. You see, AccuWeather Daily is more than just weather. It's AccuWeather. Listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Wendy Feinerman, Hollywood producer. All right. We're at the lightning round, Wendy. You might know this best as would you rather. And the only challenge here is that you can't think about the answer. You just have to say whatever comes to your mind. Okay. You ready? Mm -hmm. Optimist or pessimist? Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> okay. That's funny. All right. Money or power? <laughs> These are really good. <laughs> okay. Money can bring power. Okay. So power. Or money, money. money can I'm bring sorry. Power. Okay, money can bring power. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> drama or comedy? Comedy. 
Rom-com or action flick? Rom-com. Which is usually better, the book or the movie? In my case, it better be the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great answer. Uh, Popcorn or candy? Candy. Stream it from your couch or catch it in the theater? Depends what the show is. Mm, Okay. Some movies are very meant... If you ever saw Heartburn, Heartburn works better on a small screen. This is something that I have learned from all the tech heads that I've worked with. Some formats work better on a small screen and versus a large screen. French fries on the side or salad? French fries. I knew you would say that. Actually, no, dressing on the dressing side. Dressing on the <laughs> side. Dressing and French fries on the side. Okay. After Meryl Streep, who is the greatest actress you've ever worked with? Meryl Streep. Okay, great answer. All right. One more two-part question for you. What is the best investment you ever made and the worst investment you ever made? And we use the term investment very broadly. It can be anything. It certainly doesn't need to be a stock or anything like that. Anything. Best investment you ever made. Best investment I ever made was my little 280SL that I bought when I was 20 two years old or three years old, and it had very limited mileage and it did need a hell of a lot of work. However, I never knew when I was pumping tons of money into it that it would be one of my best investments because it's worth more than I ever paid for it and worth more than I ever put into it. The other fun investment that I I just thought of that I made was I was in a gallery in Los Angeles and there was a very interesting mirror in the bathroom. I liked the mirror in the bathroom. I said to the gallerist, what is that? She said, oh, it's a James Dine mirror. I said, wow. She goes, well, here's the problem. We don't really know how many there are. So we can't really say if it's one or if there's multiples. We do know where it came from. It had come from the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles downtown. The owner of it before it was really closed, had given a number of artists each room to decorate. And one room was a Jim Dine room. And this artist had done this mirror for this room. So I said, okay, how much is it? She goes, three grand. Because <laughs> she couldn't really give an estimate. Well, that was a good thing I bought. <laughs> All right. That's a good answer. That is a good answer. The worst investment I ever made was uh, allowing my son to choose a car. He was way too fast for a first car because I don't know anything about cars, hence my first investment, which was lucky. And that car didn't last long. Everyone's fine, but it didn't last long. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much also to Wendy Feinerman for her candor and sharing her wisdom, not just with me, but with our entire incredible audience. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com forward slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone here at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. <laughs>